Man, thank you, worship team. So, so good today. You know, I was just thinking as we were singing that song, you know, we think about how great the Lord is. So many times we'll think about the amazing things that God has done and the things that God can do. When we say, great are you, Lord, it's also so important to think about just how great he is. And when you think about how great he is, think about how much he loves you and the greatness of his love and the greatness of his grace and his mercy toward you and toward me. I know there are a lot of people here today who are facing some really big things. I've had a couple of conversations this morning, and there are people here that are um, dealing with a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. Great is his heart toward you. I just want you to know that today. Great is his heart toward you. It truly is. All right. We're going to go to Romans chapter 6 this morning. We're continuing our study of the book of Romans. And uh, very excited about this today. And uh, have you ever noticed those words that are out there that are both a noun and a verb? Like the word drive. You know, Melanie will catch me and say, hey, let's go for a drive. And then she'll later on say, why do you drive that way? You know, <laughs> she's so helpful, by the way. My, my wife is very helpful to me when I'm driving. She tells me how fast to go and, you know, uh, when, I'm, when I'm, you know, getting too close to a car, you know, when to turn on my signal, when to turn off my signal, you know, all those kinds of little cues that I need. Uh, she helps me so much when I'm driving. She really does. So I'm so, so grateful for that. And it's really, I really do need help because y'all know I have the attention span of a gerbil. I really do. And so, yeah, and I'll, I'll see shiny objects all over the place as I'm driving down the interstate. So she really helps me a lot, and I appreciate that. I don't know if you've noticed this avalanche of technology. We have a lot of new words that are both a noun and a verb. You know, the words like Google. You know, Google is the name of a company, but that became a verb. You know, in text, you know, like you look at your Bible, your Bible is a text. You might remember your college professors saying, open up your text, but then we also text one another all the time. And, you know, download is another example. Uh, email. Email started off as a verb, then it became a noun. And then words like fax, even the word link, you know, going to link two things together, but I'm going to send you a link, you know, things like that. And so we have a word today that is both a noun and a verb. That's our title today. The title is Offering. My apologies to Gina, our secretary. I changed the name. It's in your bulletin as a different title. I changed the title this morning because I like this better. When we hear the word offering, most of us, our minds immediately go to money. Like, oh man, Les is going to talk about money today because we're in church and we said offering. But no, when you read your Bible, there's so much more to this idea of offering than just giving money. This word is used over 700 times in your Bible, probably when you do all the different forms of the word, about a thousand times in your Bible, some form of the word offer is used. So this is a huge part of our life in God and a special concept in God's word because it's both something you can do, but it's also something you can be. Offering is something you want to do. Offering is something you and I want to be because the word offering characterizes the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. For example, Ephesians 5, 2 says, Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 8, look what Paul tells us here. He says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. 
And the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. You think, well, that's very hard to understand. I I, I get it. We're going to talk about it. But look at verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness for sin shall not be your master. Please underline this verse in your Bible. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law. You are under grace. Look at verse 8. If we died with Christ, we will live with him. What does that mean? That seems like a very odd thing to say. The Bible teaches you and me something that the universities and our schools will not, that man is a spiritual creature. As a human being, there are three distinct dimensions to your existence. Your spirit, your soul, and your body. Your spirit, the imago Dei, the image of God breathed into you. Your soul, your mind, your will and emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. And then there is your body. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the apostle Paul said, May the God of peace himself make you holy in every way, and may your whole being, spirit, soul, and body remain blameless. Why are most of you here today? Because you sense that there's more to life than what you can see and feel. There's more to you than just your thoughts, just your cravings, your appetites, and your feelings. There's a, there's a higher dimension to life, and you see that, and you, and you, and you sense that, and so you're, you're always seeking more. You're seeking some, some kind of transcendence in life. And Paul is speaking here about our existence on what you might call the spiritual plane, in the spiritual realm. In our spirit, he says, if we die with Christ, what he means is if we, if we die to our old selves, our old goals, our old ambitions, and I remember when this happened to me, we die to our old ambitions, our old goals, our old values, our old lusts. He says, then we will live with him. We will have a new life source deep in our spirit. And that's what the salvation transaction really is, is when you go to Jesus and you say, I have wrecked my life. I've, I, I, you know, I've just careened out of control here. Lord Jesus, I can't do it on my own anymore. And so, Lord Jesus, I need you to come into me and rearrange the furniture. And my life will never be the same, but I'm okay with that because I got to get away from what I have been. And when you do that, there's a sense in which Paul is saying that you die to yourself because it's no longer just about you anymore. It's about you and the Lord together as one. And so that's what he means to die with self. And he says, when you do that, you're going to live with him. Romans chapter 8, look at this is from the J.B. Phillips translation. He says, if Christ does live within you, his presence means that your sinful nature is dead, but your spirit becomes alive because of the righteousness that he brings with him. And once the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives within you, he will bring your whole being, soul and body and spirit to new strength and vitality. Oh, I love that so much. That's so, so great. Look at verse nine. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. 
Christ was buried. He was placed in a tomb. And after three days, he rose from the grave. He conquered death. And so Paul says, how could he ever die again? The simple answer is, he can't. Can I get an amen to that? All right, it's really awesome. Jesus walked out of that grave. He is done with death for good. He cannot go back into sin. He cannot go back into death. And by the power of God, Jesus now lives free from sin, free from death. He was born of a woman, Galatians says, came into this world. He lived in this you know, this darkness and all this that we live in, the sin, the evil, the corruption. He lived among all of that and he died. He died. He experienced all those things that this world of sin and death has. But now Jesus lives free from sin and death by the power of God. And Paul is saying the same thing, if you know Jesus as your Savior, is true for you. The spirit within you was dead at that point of your life before your salvation. But at salvation, when you died to yourself, your spirit was raised to life just as Jesus was. And so now, because of Christ in us, Christ in you, there's a new power in relationship to sin that has been given to you and me because of God's grace. And this resurrected, regenerated, repurposed spirit within you and me is set free from sin. That's an amazing thing to say. It's remarkable. It's revolutionary. But it brings up a great question. If that's true, why are there so many areas of my life where I still struggle with sin? And you know, it's so true, isn't it? We read these lofty statements in Romans and we say, that's amazing. That's fantastic. But I'm still struggling so much. This is the first time, by the way, in the book of Romans, we're six chapters in, that we're being asked to do anything. Up to now, everything Paul has written about is what God has done for us. Now, we're going to begin the process of Paul saying, this is what we do for God. Number one, we need to determine that we are dead to sin. we got to determine that. Look at verse 11. Count yourselves dead to sin. All right, that word count, by the way, is a really great word. And it's going to come up on the screen, yeah. You see it, you see we get our word logic or logical from this. And it means things like, it's from the world of mathematics. And it means something like calculate, compute, reason, determine, conclude. So he's kind of saying, think about this logically and come to a logical conclusion. We are no longer dead in sin, we are dead to sin. Did you see that? We are not dead in sin like we used to be. We're dead to sin. We're no longer dead to God. We are now alive to God. And the magnitude of this change of state, this change of status, could not be more profound. You and I can no longer, no more go back into sin and death than Jesus can go back into the grave. That's kind of what he's saying. And once we have determined that we are dead to sin with Christ, then we get to go on to life in Jesus. And once we have the power because of Christ living in us, the power of the resurrection living in you and me, this sin and death conquering power that Jesus had is now available to you and to me. Look at Philippians chapter three up on the screen. 
Paul said, my determined purpose is that I may know him, become more deeply acquainted with him, that I may share in that same way, come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, the resurrection power of Jesus. And so it's just important to remember, just be determined in your own mind that whenever temptation comes, whenever temptation comes, I don't have to obey sin. I am free to refuse it. I have the power within me to make another choice. And I have in my freedom that Jesus purchased for me the ability to do what Jesus did every day of his life, even to the very end. I can make myself an offering to God, just like Jesus. Hebrews 10, 12 says, our high priest offered himself to God as a sacrifice for our sins. He did that every day of his life. My will is to do the will of my Father. Okay? Number two, we determine we are dead to sin. Number two, we deliver our body over to God. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, don't let sin reign in your body. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Rather, offer yourselves to God as someone who's returned from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. This is so important to remember about Christianity. God wants your body. You know, all other religious systems are always saying that there's something wrong with your body. It's evil. It's weak. It needs to be escaped from. It needs to be, uh, you know, done away with. Christianity isn't like that at all. Christianity teaches us that God purchased our bodies from the slave market of sin And he wants to use this weak and damaged body that I have for his purpose, for his glory during this time that I have on earth. And when this life is over, he's going to take this broken body, he's going to raise it from the grave, and he's going to transform it for all eternity. It's called glorification. Now, when I was younger, I would read this verse, and my mind would automatically go to the negative. Offering a part of my body to God always to me meant stop it. All right, whatever it is you're doing, stop it. That's what it means to offer your body to God. What Paul is saying to you and me is so much more than stop doing whatever you're doing. And we probably all have something in our mind right now that we should stop doing. But when we offer our body to God, we start, we get the green light. Start using your body for something else, the godly thing. For example, I always thought, offer your tongue to God. Stop cussing. Stop gossiping. You know, that kind of thing. It's true, but that's not freedom. Freedom is repurposing that part of your body, and you resist using it for evil, but then you intentionally use it for good. I think, you know, if you were to kind of go around town and ask most people, they'd probably say something, you know, like, you know, Les is a pretty encouraging person, you know? And I have to be honest with you, that was absolutely not the case for the first half of my life. And if you know me very well, you'll know that there are times I can get really harsh and mean, all right? I really can. And uh, for many years, I was just always cutting people down. And I remember when it began. When I was in the eighth grade, we moved, and I wanted to make friends. And there's a group of kids standing around outside the school one morning. And I didn't really know anybody or anything like that. And I walked up, you know how you do in middle school, and I walked up, you know, like say, you know, John and Susanna are the cool kids, right? 
I kind of walked up about five feet away from the cool kids. I just kind of standing on the outside of the crowd. I just kind of looking in there. And the guy who was like the center of attention, his name was Shannon. Shannon Schwingdorf. I'm not making that up. All right, that's his real name. And Shannon had everybody's attention because Shannon was in the middle of this crowd and he was just mocking everybody. Man, he was, he could, you know, he, he could do impressions and, 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 he, and he was just so cutting and harsh and he's just mean. But everybody was laughing and cutting up. And I remember, I, I, I remember, guys, I, I do, thinking to myself, okay, that's cool. Everybody, everybody likes him. I need friends. And so if I'm going to have friends, this is what I need to do. And so I kind of began at that point, uh, you know, becoming a very harsh, mean, mocking person. I really was. And so I learned how to imitate people. I would do voices and mannerisms, and I did all these things to make fun of them. All right. Now, I have to admit, he was brutal, but he was funny. Okay. And so I started mocking teachers, coaches, fellow students, and I got good at it. I got lots of laughs. And my family will tell you, sometimes I'll be watching TV and I'll start mocking the people on TV. And uh, my kids are like, Dad, that's not funny. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't do that anymore. You can't say the things you used to. But if you had a flaw, you had some mistake, or you had an idiosyncrasy, I would exploit that for my own gain. Well, fast forward about probably 10 or 12 years. God had been working in my life. I had surrendered to the ministry. And I, I was hanging around with a youth group one Sunday night after church. And there was a young lady there. She said something. I don't remember what it was, but I mocked her. You know, I, I, I made fun of her. Everybody laughed because it's always so fun to laugh at other people. And I could just see the look on her face. And she was just so wounded. And I realized, you know, the power of my words in her life. Very soon after that incident, I was sitting in my office having my quiet time one morning and I was reading through the book of Ephesians, and man, it was like God just, the, the fist of God punched me in the head when I read Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, which means building up. According to the need of the moment, listen to this, so that it will give grace to those who hear. As I gotta tell you, man, I... I was cut to the heart. And I didn't need to just stop cutting people down, I realized. I needed to be an instrument for building up the church. I needed to learn what it means to encourage people. And I remember the presence of God in my office was just thick that day. And I remember getting down on my knees saying, God, I just want to ask you to use me to edify and build up your church. Lord, I'm sorry. I repent. I've been using my tongue for evil. I've been offering this part. I didn't understand that at the time, but I've been offering this part of my body, you know, for sin, and I want to offer it to you for good. And so, yeah, I offered that part of my body to God. And I wish I could tell you that, by the way, it's like an overnight change, right? Absolutely not, you know. Uh, Melanie, I'm, I'm really serious this time. She helps me a lot. She has helped me a lot with that. And a lot of times I'll say things. She's like, Les, you shouldn't say that. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. All right, and I stopped listening to talk radio because it was all mockery. And I realized I was mocking people. The more I listened to talk radio, I was doing the same thing. So I cut it all out of my life. I can look back now 
And the difference in my daily conversation compared to 25 years ago, night and day. Not perfect, but so, so different. Philippians chapter two, Paul wrote this. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power, he says, to do what pleases him. We have the power to be free of a sin because we have the power of the living God himself within us. And the same part of your body, Paul says here, that has been used for sin, it can reverse course, it can be repurposed, and it can be used for glory. It's going to mean a struggle, absolutely. Patterns of our lives are deeply ingrained in us. But in Christ, he says, we do have the strength to do it, and we have the right to do it because we have been, we are, our freedom from the slave market of sin has been purchased. And so Romans 12.1 says, Brothers and sisters, since God has shown you great mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to him. So we offer our eyes to God and say, God, I don't want my eyes, the eyes are the window to the soul. Lord, I don't want my eyes to be on the trash. I want my eyes to be on the truth. Lord, I offer you my mind. And so I'm going to decrease thinking about money, and I'm going to increase thinking about ministry. Uh, Offer your feet to God. Lord, wherever you lead, I will go. You tell me where to go, I'll go there. Uh, Have you ever offered your hands to God? I've done this many times over the years. When I get really tired working on projects here around the church, I'll just hold out my hands. I think about Nehemiah 6.1. It says, uh, that there were leaders who were trying to discourage Nehemiah because they were rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And they were trying to intimidate us, Nehemiah says. They will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. And Nehemiah prays, but now God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. I've prayed that prayer so many times over the years. You see, what happens is when your entire focus is on not doing something, It's the very thing you'll be tempted to do. But when your focus is shifted from omitting something from your life to offering something to God in your life, offer that part of your body to God. There's a new power and there's a new strength there. And the last thing is this real quickly. You want to deny this impulse that we all have to deplore ourselves, okay? Paul closes this section with one of the greatest verses in all the Scripture. Sin shall not be your master. Why? Because you are not under law. You are under grace. Can I just tell you this today? If sin has mastery over you, it's because you believe you're still under law and you have not quite grasped yet, yet, what it means to be under grace. Yes, why does Paul bring in the law? This is the thing that oftentimes depresses us and discourages us more than anything else. The law... You know, the commandments that we see all through our Old Testament, even our New Testament in some places, these are the, 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 the sense of condemnation we feel when we fall short of the law. The law says that unless you live up to a standard, God, want, God doesn't want anything to do with you. We've been so ingrained with us. It's been so ingrained in us, even as believers, that when I fall short, I think that God is angry, he's frustrated, He's disappointment, disappointed. He's like, again, you know, I can't believe this guy. He did that again. We have talked about this over and over and over again. 
I've told him what I expect, and he still won't do it, and here we are again. You know, I think we often believe that God is still using the law as a guiding principle in his relationship with us. Why would we think that? Because that's how all of our other relationships work. But how great is our God that he does not relate to us in law any longer. He relates to us in grace. And so when we think about ourselves in terms of a law relationship with God, we become discouraged, we become defeated, and we're just dismayed. And will I ever get better? But Paul is using emphatic language here. He says, you are not under law. You are under grace. You do not live your life with the threat of condemnation hanging over your head any longer. And I, I would just say here today that if there's, a, if there's something in your life that has mastered you and you want to be free of it so badly, memorize Romans 8.1 as fast as you can. No condemnation hangs over the head over those who are in Christ Jesus. For the new spiritual principle of life in Christ lifts me out of the old vicious circle of sin and death. It means so, so much. So I want to end on this note today. I want you to imagine someone you know who rents a house. Let's say his name is Chip, okay? And uh, you go to visit, and Chip and his wife Joanna are remodeling, all right? And man, they're, 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 they're going to town on this rent house. There's a new bathroom in the works. There's a new kitchen in the works. They got landscapers out in the yard, and they're knocking down walls. They're tearing out fixtures. They're tearing out cabinets. You go, wow, this is amazing. What motivated your landlord to come in here and do this total remodel for you? And he said, oh, he isn't paying for all this. I am. You know, I'm doing all the work myself as much as I can, most of it anyway, and I'm, and I'm paying for it all myself. And it's really, really hard work, but it's worth it. And you're like, dude, this is a rental. Why on earth? This is not your home. Why are you investing so much in a rental? And he says, man, my landlord is going to love all that I've invested in this place. He's going to be so grateful, and I'm never leaving. I'm staying here forever. The landlord comes over. He looks around, sees all that this person is doing, sees all Chip is doing, all the money Chip is spending, all the hard work Chip is pouring in. And he watches it closely, and the landlord just patiently waits for Chip and Joanna to finish the work. Because he realizes when it's finished, he can rent that place for a lot more than he's charging Chip and Joanna. So after a few years, multiple tens of thousands of dollars, the remodel is complete. Chip and Joanna are so proud. The landlord comes over to the house and he says, man, this looks great, guys. Looks fantastic. All right, give me the keys. I'm kicking you out. What? What? What do you mean you're kicking us out? After all we've done, after all we've given, you have any idea how much time and money, how much of my life that I poured into this place? You're stealing from me. You were just using me. And he says, hey, it's not personal. It's just business. Now give me the keys. If you don't give me the keys, I'm changing the locks. And if you don't have your stuff out of here by tomorrow, I'm going to auction it off and I'm going to keep that money too. And they leave the house. They poured themselves into 
bitter, angry, broken, and broke, and lesser for it. What do we call a person like Chip and Joanna? A burnt offering. That's what that is. It's a burnt offering. You gave everything you had to something or someone that wasn't worthy, worthy of the investment. And you got burned. It was never going to give back what you gave to it. And how many people we know who have offered themselves to something or someone and gotten burned. They offered themselves to a man, offered themselves to a woman, offered themselves to a career, to a sport, to a certain group, to a house, to a lifestyle. And one day they get burned. They find out all that investment was for nothing. See, what Paul tells you and me here is that we are all an offering. All of us offer ourselves to something, or should I say someone. We either offer ourselves to God, we offer ourselves to the devil. We offer ourselves to life, we offer ourselves to death. We offer ourselves to righteousness, we offer ourselves to sin. Paul says there are only two alternatives, only two. We either offer ourselves to sin, we offer ourselves to God. When we offer ourselves to sin, what happens? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The landlord steals from us, and we end up a burnt offering because we, invented, we invested so much in the rental, in the rental. I was listening to a song by one of my favorite bands called Switchfoot. I love Switchfoot. It's a song called Where I Belong. Hear the lyrics to that song. I'm not sentimental. This skin and bones is just a rental. No one makes it out of here alive. And until I die, I'll sing these songs here on the shores of Babylon. This body is not my own. This world is not my home. And on that final day that I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to tell you that I tried. And when I reach the other side, I want to look you in the eye and know that I've arrived in a world where I belong. Colossians chapter 3. You've been raised to life. Focus on the things above, not on the things below, not on the things of this world. Why? It's just a rental. It's just a rental. That's all it is. Offer yourselves to God. Count yourselves dead to sin. Offer yourselves to God. The word of God says. Let's bow our heads together this morning if we could. If we could just uh, quiet our hearts together for a moment this morning. I want to ask you to think about this whole idea that this body that you're in, it's been purchased from the slave market of sin. It's been paid for. It's been purchased and it's been died for. And now, this body that you have, this, this rental property, we're only asked to offer it back to God. It's broken. It's broken. It's, it's weary. And there's just not a whole lot there. But God says, if you would just offer it to me, I can do so much more with it than you ever could. If you would just invest it in me, so much more can be happening because of what you give to me. If you offer it to me, so much more will come your way.
And so I just want to ask you to go before the Lord this morning. And I know there may be some things that you might be thinking about this morning. I need to stop this. I need to stop that. We just go before the Lord and say, Lord, what would you, like, what would you have me start? What would you have me start? Lord, what, what would you have me offer to you? Maybe it's like me. It might be the, the, your mouth, your tongue. It might be your hands. It might be your eyes. It might be your mind. What would God have you offer him today? What is the Spirit speaking to you about offering him? Because we don't want to invest all of our time, energy, and money and effort into a rental. This world is not our home. This is not where we belong. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul tells us. And so I ask you for the Lord this morning to speak about what it means for your life to be an offering to the Lord. And I'll be quiet for a moment or two, then I'm going to pray for us. And Lord, I just want to ask for your forgiveness. Lord, there are so many times, Father, that I just invent so, invest so much of myself in rental property. And so, Father, I just want to come before you today and just in the name of Jesus, I just pray, Lord, that you would not only strengthen my hands, but Lord, that you would strengthen my heart, Lord, so that I would be able, Lord, to, to resist that temptation, Father, to invest in the rental. But Lord, just show me what it means to invest in eternal things, in my eternal home. And so, Father, I just know that there's a treasure laid up for all of us here in heaven who know you. Lord, I pray that you just teach us how to invest ourselves into that treasure, into that place, into that time, the time beyond all time. And so, Father, I pray for everyone here today, Lord, especially those people who are dealing with just so much worry, so much anxiety over the future. Lord, I just pray that you would show them in a new and fresh way what it means to offer themselves to you. We ask this in your name, Jesus.